Alison. Hi, Sarah. So with only two months to go before the French presidential elections, how do you fancy a little election campaign quiz to kick off this week's show? Uh, okay. <laughs> Happy Days for France is the slogan of which French political party? And you have 10 seconds counting. Mm, it's hard to imagine anyone in France with such a cheery attitude. I don't know. Is there a new happiness party? No, it's the Communist Party. Ah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. The slogan is a reference to a French resistance manifesto during World War II. I guess when the party was in its heyday. Exactly. Well, no harm in trying to be nostalgic. Well, uh, we are seeing Eric Zemmour, right? The far-right maverick candidate. He's going big on nostalgia. His, though, is a doom and gloom take, mm. the perils of immigration, radical Islam, that kind of thing. Yeah, whereas the communists are trying to be upbeat mm. and optimistic. They're promising, for example, to raise the minimum wage to 1,500 euros mm. after tax, and they want to triple the wealth tax. Yeah, they could turn out to be popular promises. The yeah. French are quite concerned about what they see as a drop in their spending power since Macron became president. They are. And for the first time then in 15 years, the Communist Party is fielding its own candidate, uh, and it's the dynamic, some would say charismatic, 52-year-old Fabien Roussel. Yeah, I guess in the last two elections, the party had backed Jean-Luc Mélenchon from the hard-left France unbowed movement. Yeah, Mélenchon is still way ahead in the polls, but Roussel is neck and neck with the Socialist Party candidate and Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris. Hmm. Not sure what that means. Well, I mean, neither is polling very high, are they? <laughs> Less than 2%. Mm. Um, I mean, is it really a comeback for the Communist Party or just further proof of the demise of the poor, poor socialists. Um, yeah. In any case, it all shows that a very splintered left here in France, even more so than in previous elections. Yeah. And meanwhile, Macron still hasn't officially declared himself candidate, mm. hasn't announced if he's going to run for a second term. His aides say he has his hands well tied trying to de-escalate this uh, tension uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And he's positioned himself as a negotiator there. I mean, to to prevent a war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess someone has to try, sure. don't they? And it, it's a fact. France is heading up the revolving presidency of the EU Council at the moment. So it does give him some legitimacy sure. to be talking about these issues. By the way, did you see the size of the table around which Macron and Putin were discussing in Moscow? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was huge. I mean, it was. They, they, apparently, there was some COVID separation rules yeah, going but on, still. but each man there on his on his own side. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. It was like the size of a limousine. Yeah. I mean, what a symbol! Talk mm. about keeping someone at arm's length. <laughs> so anyway, all of that, all that geopolitics is keeping Macron from launching a political campaign here in France. And in the meantime. Well, all the others are ramping up ahead of the polls in April. Je revenais du travail, personne ne m'attendait. Paris qui a pas de saut métier, moi je fais des trous dans des billets. Je fais des trous, des petits trous, encore des petits trous, des petits trous, des petits trous, toujours des petits trous, des petits trous, des petits trous, des petits trous, des petits trous. 
So, Allison, the COVID pandemic has focused a lot of attention on work, what we do, where we do it, how we do it, and to some extent, why we do it. Yeah, there was this whole issue, wasn't there, Sarah, around essential workers mm-hmm. during the lockdowns, who was required or allowed to work sure. and who had to stay at home. Yeah, yeah. And then we saw as things started to open up, the cafes and restaurants having trouble hiring, I mean, still having trouble hiring yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and many people have decided to leave the industry altogether, tired of the long hours, the low pay. Yeah. And we're seeing this phenomenon in the United States in even more industries with the so-called great resignation. Lots of people leaving all kinds of jobs, really rethinking their work. For the moment, that isn't happening that much here, is it? Um, mm-hmm. That We have a lot more social protection here in France sure, and in the sure. States. Yeah. yeah, maybe people, you know, willing to put up with with jobs they don't like a little bit longer, who knows. But um, the fact that we've been forced to work from home, or a lot of people have been forced to work at home, has actually caused people to rethink how they do their work. So many have left big cities to set up in the country, work remotely. And it's raised questions for some about what they're actually doing. And enter the bullshit job. (laughs) Ah, yes, we've heard that term before. Sure, it was coined, at least made popular by the American anthropologist David Graeber, who published a book in 2018, in which he defined a bullshit job as one that doesn't have any real purpose. And it's defined by the person doing it. So if you think your job is bullshit, well, it is. His argument was that bullshit jobs are a product of capitalism, which requires everyone to work in some form or another. So the concept took off in the popular culture, I mean, around the world. But a guy named Nicolas Kaiser-Brill noticed it had not been picked up by academics, sociologists, economists. He's a data journalist, and he's had his fair share of bullshit jobs. And he thought that maybe there was more to Graeber's theory. So he researched and wrote his own book that was published in France at the start of this year called Imposture à temps complet, Pourquoi les bullshit jobs envahissent le monde? Full-time imposters, why bullshit jobs are taking over the world. It's interesting that the key word there, bullshit, Mm -hmm. isn't even translated. Absolutely. Um, There's actually a whole discussion in the book about how it's it's really hard to actually translate that term. (laughs) Anyway... He refined Graeber's definition, saying that there are some objectively bullshit jobs or tasks. They are opaque, unclarifiable. He singles out, for example, reporting in office jobs, all the endless reports or, or meetings with no purpose. Mm, um, yeah. This, the, yeah. This, of course, applies to workers around the world. But I talked to him about how this applies to France. It's the country he grew up in, though he now lives in Germany. I've been confronted to many situations where I was paid to do things that were absolutely meaningless and useless. I I opened the book uh, with an example from 2018 when I was asked by um, a fairly big aid agency to train journalism multipliers using blended learning. So this is the job description. Those are the words that were used. That was the job description. And every time I offered to, to do something, they were like, but but where's the journalism multiplication and where, where's the blended learning? Even though both terms, they're not very precise. I, I tried to explain that. And um, unfortunately, this is far from being the only um, experience I had with uh, bullshit jobs. Is there a sort of country specificity of, of bullshit jobs? Like, can we talk about the French flavor of bullshit? <laughs> Uh, It's hard to say because many of the uh, bullshit tasks come from this trend towards more reporting and more auditing, which uh, comes from the US, uh, and it came to Europe in the late 1980s. 
And since then, I would say that French companies, but also the French administration, uh, have tried to imitate what they think is the US way of doing things. And in doing so, created a lot of pointless tasks. I mean, when we're looking at public jobs and public service, is it particularly egregious? Bullshit jobs have proliferated in public service. Uh, And the one thing that's uh, especially concerning is that civil servants already have a mission at heart. And when you add a layer of bullshit on top of that, it creates uh, a tension between what they want to do and what they actually have to do. And it creates a lot of professional suffering. There's also that, you know, some people don't even realize they're in a bullshit job or doing a bullshit job. But once people realize it, do they tend to quit? I ask this because I feel like in France, there's this sort of culture of a job for life, essentially. There has been historically less job mobility and, and the whole societal structure is built around having a steady job. You know, you get an apartment that way and you get a bank account that way. And so like the, the incentive to say, you know, I'm not happy or I don't think I'm accomplishing anything, I'm going to go find something else, is not really there. Does anybody ever quit? From what I've uh, seen, the m- most frequent reaction to bullshit jobs is not quitting, uh, but it's rather to uh, detach oneself from reality and to become totally uh, cynical and to say, well, the job doesn't make any sense, but I don't really care because it's just a job. So so nobody's saying, okay, this is it, I'm quitting. I'm going to go and find something else. Uh, there are many people who um, do quit, but I would say that they most often quit office work rather than uh, bullshit jobs. Uh, and I investigated a bit in depth the... Um, gastronomy industry, where many people who went to expensive universities decide not to go into office work, but instead to uh, open a restaurant, for instance, or a bakery. Sometimes they don't dump the uh, bullshit. Some of them will say, for instance, oh, I revolutionized the uh, eating industry because I put these uh, meatballs in a sandwich. And it's exactly the same words that you would find on a meaningless PowerPoint except that this time it's on a restaurant menu. So bullshit can still be there even outside of the typical office uh, context. One of the things I noticed, because there is a safety net in France, you have people when they're, for example, feeling harassed at work or burnt out at work, they'll like go on long-term sick leave. Do bullshit jobs push people to do that? It's uh, certain that the meaninglessness of professional life can push some people to go on, to, on uh, long-term leave. However, uh, for people uh, my generation, so between uh, 20 and 35, this safety net does not really exist because they have been forced to accept freelance work, in which case there is basically no long-paid sick leave that's possible. Around you, personally, do you find that people around you, is everybody doing bullshit work? I think everybody I know does bullshit tasks in a day of work. Uh, But not everyone, fortunately, uh, is doing that full time. Uh, And it's not even a topic of conversation Mm -hmm. anymore because we're so used to it. Uh, When we start a new job, uh, we tend to expect that we will have to do meaningless things and we don't think twice about it. This is coming, of course, during a pandemic, COVID, and there is a lot of discussion about work, right, throughout this pandemic. What's the COVID effect on all of this, if anything? The pandemic was uh, very revealing. First, they were these essential workers who are paid lowest in society, and they were the only ones working during the 
beginning of the pandemic at least. Uh, on the other hand, you had uh, many office workers working from home. And what I found fascinating is how little controversy this uh, provoked. It's as if everybody knew about it and everybody was clear about it. To, to take just one example, at the very beginning of the pandemic, it was in spring, and there was a big issue with vegetables uh, that had to be picked. Farmers didn't have enough workers to pick all the vegetables for to go to grocery stores. Borders were closed and farmers uh, could not uh, hire their usual uh, Romanians or Moroccans to pick up the vegetables. And what I found fascinating is that no one almost proposed to do what textbook economics uh, say should happen, which is to raise salaries so that people uh, in France would pick up the vegetables. That, that would maybe attract these office workers to say, oh, maybe I'll make more money picking strawberries instead. Exactly. That's, that's what we've been taught at school would happen. And it didn't happen. And not only did it not happen, but no one really believed that it would happen. I think much of the economic theory that we learn at school, the very basic uh, idea that there is a market for work and that companies pay people to do useful things, this theory seems to be totally detached from reality. So it's self-bullshit. However, it's very useful in that it's a very efficient way for office workers to, to accept their, their position and to say, Oh, because I'm getting paid, it means that I'm creating value for society and for the company that pays me. I feel like in France, your work life and your personal life, there is a clear separation and people take their time off and people enjoy going on vacation and that kind of thing. Do you think the culture kind of creates the interest in and the acceptance of bullshit jobs to some extent? The sort of work that, that you don't feel compelled to spend nights and weekends doing, you can leave at the office and go home and enjoy your, the other part of your life. You're right. It's it's a possibility that the reason why no one was talking much about bullshit jobs in France before the um, year 2000 was because there was this culture of separation between work and private life. And maybe uh, what happened since uh, 2002, since uh, Nicolas Sarkozy introduced this fetishism of work. To wor work more, to earn more. Travailler uh, <laughs> plus pour gagner plus. <laughs> yeah, we, still, we still remember that. Maybe this converted the French people into accepting work as the finality of life. Nowadays, all politicians in all political parties think that work is the most important thing and as such make bullshit jobs acceptable. So what to do about all this? And one way to solve it would be to uh, create so much economic growth that uh, you could just quit your job and take a better one. Uh, and this is the situation that prevailed in France between 1950 and 1990. However, we know that economic growth is not a long-term uh, strategy because it's going to destroy this planet. So what I advocate is more to take a step back and to stop considering work as the best thing in life. And things that we can do uh, very, very quickly, for instance, would be to have a three-day weekend. So less work for everyone, including for the bullshit jobbers. And we could also embrace bullshit. And when you're an, art, an artist and even a, a book author, people will ask you, but what's your real job? So when they ask this question, they probably think this is bullshit what you do and you should have something productive. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that instead of focusing on productivity, we should uh, focus on what people enjoy. Are, I mean, are you then advocating for something like universal basic income or that kind of thing? Uh, totally. I mean, I personally am not a fan of uh, universal basic income because it can mean many things. But yeah, the problem of bullshit jobs had, 
has everything to do with the issue of inequalities and having um, a wealth tax, an inheritance tax, is absolutely needed to make society livable again. If you're doing a bullshit job that happens to be well-paid, if all of a sudden it becomes less well-paid because you're paying more tax, you might rethink your whole job. If there is no um, incentive for those who have the well-paid bullshit jobs to uh, to keep it and to do all these meaningless PowerPoint presentations and meetings all day, uh, yeah, they, they might discover that there is more to life than this. So ultimately, did you get the answers you were looking for writing this book for yourself? I'm happy of the book and of, of the research and of the uh, add-ons I made to uh, David Greber's theory. However, I'm still feeling very frustrated when I'm confronted to bullshit tasks. And you're uh, still doing it. You're still having to deal with it. I, I, of course, because we need to uh, write applications for grants and we need to do reporting. Yeah. <laughs> and all of these tasks we know are mostly meaningless. So in, in this sense, I'm still stuck. For a single person, unless you're ready to break every link you have with uh, the current uh, professional society, it's impossible to, uh, to get rid of it. Une cuisinière avec un four en verre, des tas de couverts et des pelles à gâteau, la tourniquette à faire la vinaigrette, le ratatine ordure et le coupe-friture. Sarah, we tend to think women's lib in France dates back to 1970 with the founding of the MLF. Right, the women's liberation movement in the wake of May 1968. But all of that didn't come out of the blue because mm. there were rumblings before. And back in 1932, a device was introduced that helped free women from their shackles. Well, they're culinary ones, at least. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah. On 16th of February, 1932, so 90 years ago this week, the French industrialist Jean Montelet patented the Moulin Légume, which is a food mill. Mm. Uh, he wanted to help out his wife. I guess he didn't want to offer to mash the potatoes himself with a fork. <laughs> no, no, no. And as he was a man with a mission and he knew a lot about gadgets, well, he designed her a tool instead. The masher was like a sieve, you know, with a hand crank. It worked a treat, was an immediate success. It sold two million units between 1933 and 35. That's huge. That's a lot. Is, yeah. yeah. And it lasted. I mean, I grew up with one of these. They're, mm. they're great for making smooth purees or applesauce. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're both doing the movement Yeah, yeah, here. we're like we're croaking both... our hands there. It's <laughs> funny. <laughs> this mangle action. Um, yeah, they are amazing devices because they keep your potato dry. <laughs> now we have a cooking it. show. Yeah, they stop it from going gloopy. Um, anyway... Then chapter two in this How to Relieve Your Wife in the Kitchen saga came after the Second World War when Montelet introduced the first electric appliances. So right. Electricity, yeah. Yeah, right, right, because because this was a hand grinder. Yeah. So among these new devices was an electric coffee grinder. Now, the French word for grind is moulinet, and Montelet had the clever idea of calling the machine moulin X the X-Mill, which of course became the now famous Moulinex, the name of the company since 1957. And there were lots of machines that followed. I mean, juicers, peelers, blenders, food processors, rotisserie chicken roasters. I yeah. mean, you name it, they made it. <laughs> they did. And in the 1960s, they had lots of successful advertising campaigns and they helped push sales of these appliances. <laughs> Moulinex, 
So you can hear there's their uh, slogans like Moulinex libère la femme, mm. Moulinex liberates the woman. There were also other campaigns around Vive la cuisine presse bouton, uh, long live cooking at the press of a button. Yeah, really pushing there on the stereotypes of, mm. of freeing women uh, from the kitchen. I mean, jumping on the airs of the time or anticipating them, who knows? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What's clear is that these gadgets did play a major role in the development of the consumer society during the so-called Trente Glorieuse, so the prosperous years from 1945 to 1975, from the end of World War II through to the oil crisis. Mm. And women didn't just benefit from these gadgets, they also played a big role in making them. The company employed a lot of women in its production facilities. Uh, the big boss, Montelet, was a pioneer of decentralization, and he moved his factories out of the Paris area and opened production facilities in small towns, notably in Normandy, where labor costs were a lot lower. Mm. Uh, he had no children, um, and when he died in 1991, Moulinex started to downsize. Sales had been dropping slightly, and the new owners started laying people off. By the early 2000s, the company had gone under, but the brand was bought and revived by the Seb Group, and it still exists today. Most of the items are made in China, but some are still made in France. <coughs> Sarah, there's a proverb in French, on ne fait pas d'omelette sans casser des œufs. There is no omelette without cracking eggs. Right, the idea that everything requires a sacrifice, break the eggs to make something good. Yeah, the expression first appeared in the Académie Française Dictionary back in 1878. Huh. But turns out it's now been disproved. Oh, so you can make an omelette without breaking eggs. Yep. Two, yeah, two young <laughs> French female scientists have developed a vegan egg. They've dubbed it the papondu, meaning not laid. So it's all been hatched in a lab? <laughs> it, it, it has, it has, over the last uh, couple of years. But there isn't a chemical in sight, only natural ingredients, vegetable and mineral, mainly using fava bean flour and, for example, carrot for the colouring. So this was designed, what, to satisfy France's growing market for vegan foods? I mean, is that a thing? I, like Traditional French food isn't exactly known for being egg or dairy-free. Yeah, indeed, vegan is still very small here. Veggie and vegan uh, accounts for uh, less than 2% of ah. the food market. But there is more and more interest in it, uh, partly because of interest in animal rights, uh, but also food allergies, which seem to be on the increase. And yet, it's very hard to escape eggs, right? They're in so many foods, like French pastries abound with eggs, industrial yeah. products, sweet and savory. I mean, yeah. eggs are everywhere. They are everywhere. And whereas there are plant-based alternatives for many animal products, like cheese, for example, uh, egg has remained elusive. Mm -mm. Yeah, you can find ways of replacing what they do in a cake, but to make an omelette, you're kind of stuck. Enter biologists uh, Philippine Souler and Sherline Tabesouk. They're on the brink of launching their Papondu eggs commercially. They'll be selling them to restaurants, first of all, and then uh, in shops a bit later on. I went along to a tasting session in a pop-up vegan restaurant in Paris to meet the women and the egg. <laughs> Uh, 
Chef Arthur holds a plastic sachet and squeezes out small blobs of pale yellow viscous liquid, each about the size of a fried egg, onto a hot grill. After a couple of minutes, he turns each one over, keeping his eye on strips of vegan bacon, which are sizzling nicely. He's preparing muffins with melted cheese, all vegan, and the star new ingredient is le papondu. Philippine Soulet and Sherilyn Tabessouk, the brains behind Papondu, are welcoming people who've come along to taste the product they've been hatching in their labs for the last couple of years. The product that we will launch will be the mix of white and yolk. You can cook it in recipes, but also cook it alone in omelettes, for example, but also scrambled Papondu. We selected a few ingredients, for example, vegetable proteins, but also fibers, everything that would allow us to have a product that will react exactly the same than a chicken egg. Sula is 26. She began working with Tavisuk four years ago when they were both students at an industrial engineering school in Paris and looking for an innovative end-of-diploma project. At first we wanted to offer a product that would look like an egg with the white and the yolk. We have a prototype that works that we can do in our own kitchens, for example, but we realized that there were a lot of work to do for the development, but also for being able to produce it in larger scales. And what about the shell? Because, of course, no egg will be an egg without a shell. About the shell, we are working on it because uh, we want a packaging with no plastic and uh, to have the same shape like a shell, we find that uh, we need some plastic so we will avoid it and we are working on it with an uh, engineer in packaging and it's still in development actually. But getting a vegan product to look exactly like the original wasn't their main motivation, says Soulaire. Actually it's not necessarily our top priority because we prefer to have a technical product that will allow you to do everything you can do with an egg. But our product is also interesting for people suffering from egg allergies, and it's mostly children, so their parents are looking for this kind of product that look like something they know, and so they can use it easily on their daily lives. The scientists managed to get the same nutritional value into their vegan egg. It's high in protein, it has fewer calories than a real egg and less saturated fat. But they haven't yet managed to get an egg white that can be whisked into a meringue. Actually, at first, we wanted to have a white that would do everything a chicken's white would, would be able to do. <laughs> but we soon realized that when we wanted to improve the foam, it did not cook as well, and we really wanted to focus on the cooking. So at first, it will only cook, but maybe one day we will be able to do both. We hope so. Neither of the women are vegetarian or vegan themselves, but Papondu is attracting a lot of attention from vegan restaurants, and the people coming into this pop-up restaurant are all vegan. Hang on, let me just taste it again, says Amadeus, tucking into his muffin, which is wrapped in red and white paper. It tastes a bit like egg. The texture is similar too, he says. I think it is really similar, but it's a bit difficult to say because I haven't eaten eggs for so long. I think this is closer, though, to what I remember of the taste of egg. It really reminds me of omelette, so it's even a bit weird, says Sandra, who has a vegan blog on Instagram. 
Eggs were a missing ingredient. For the vegans, we don't need products of replacement. Vegans don't really need replacement products. Give us a handful of lentils and some pasta. We're happy. What we want is to avoid hurting animals. So we're ready to eat less well. Brigitte Gauthier is from the animal rights lobby group L214, which campaigns actively against animal cruelty. She's enjoying the papondu, but says she's happy that even meat eaters could be enticed and change their eating habits, much like Beyond Burgers have encouraged meat eaters to eat veggie burgers. The strength of this kind of innovation is that it resembles a product that people know and it means they can change the consequences of what they eat without changing the way they cook. Donc c'est ça qui est vraiment euh, très intéressant, se lancer dans une alimentation qui a vraiment moins de conséquences. That's what's so interesting. There is less impact on animals, on the environment, on health. Sanitaire. Mais justement, c'est plutôt des produits qui s'adressent à tout le monde. The products are for everyone. Disant, bah, écoutez, the message is, you like the taste? Here it is. Bah, Retrouvez-le là, tout simplement. So the vegans seem to like the omelette. What about you? This is what I said. Oh, that is really interesting. Reminds me of mushroom. Yeah, there's a kind of texture of mushroom in it. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. Not bad. Oh, Alison, that's such a French reaction. Pas mal. Could actually mean either good or bad. Yeah, I realized that afterwards. I couldn't believe I'd said that. Um, because honestly, I thought it was really good. Mm. And I've been recommending it to uh, loads of people, not just vegans. I think I've been in France a bit too long. Pas mal. <laughs> so, so the egg that's not an egg, from, from what I understand, they're developing it with the backing of Station F, which mm. is a massive startup incubator here in Paris. Yeah. Uh, they've been uh, learning a lot more about entrepreneurship, mm. which they don't really have because they come from a scientific background. Sure. So things are going pretty well. Uh, they have big ambitions to grow. They raised the original R&D money through a crowdfunding operation, and now they're working on getting investors. Yeah, we'll see if uh, the vegan food movement can attract enough support in the land of egg-based everything. We're clocking out of uh, Spotlight on France this week, Sarah. This episode was mixed beautifully by Cécile Pompiani. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. If you like what you hear, plucks and all, <laughs> rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It really helps make us more visible. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back on Thursday, February the 24th. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye, Alison.